It's not that Christians want to shove Jesus down your throat. But man, if you knew, if you knew how he can transform you, how he can take away all that bitterness, that sorrow, that hurt, that depression, all that anxiety, we boast about our Lord because he is mighty. You know, it it may sound boastful, but we are boasting in what we know. We are boasting in Jesus, in what he has done for us. And once we have been touched by his great love, we want everybody else to know it. It may come across as boastful, but what it really is, is truth. It is truth. When we share what the Lord has done for us, and we tell somebody that has never experienced that, when we tell them that, it's solely because we want them to experience the same. We want them to know what we know. So if it sounds like boasting, let it be boasting in the Lord. That is okay, because we are sharing the truth of what Jesus has done for us. One of the other things that I have noticed out of that list, and it really came to me when I was going through all the different responses that we had gotten, is that when people share their faith story, their testimony, most often they start in the unexpected, things that they never saw coming, and then they launch into the rest of what the Lord has done for us. We start in the unexpected. I don't know why that is. Maybe it's because that's where we met Jesus for the first time, or maybe that's where we grew deeper in our knowledge of him. But there is something about the unexpected that catapults our testimony into this boastful truth that we share with other people. Nothing wrong with that. Nothing wrong with that. And though each of us have a different experience with the Lord, make no mistake about it, most every testimony begins. Most everyone who shares the answer to, I never expected Jesus to, does so with a common thread. That common thread sounds like this, I never expected Jesus to love me so much. I never expected Jesus to want me the way he does. Those are the common threads that get tied through people's testimonies, through their faith stories, even as they are launching into them from the unexpected. It's a pretty amazing thing. And both of those things, I never expected Jesus to love me so much, or I never expected Jesus to want me the way he does, sets the table for us to understand why he did what he did when he came to this earth and then eventually died on the cross, was buried, and three days later rose again. Here's what I mean by that. There's a misconception that Jesus did that solely to save us. He did not. Jesus did that to transform us, to redeem us, to make us a new person. That's why Jesus did what he did, to change us so that we might be more like him, that we might understand him, that we might know him and live with him. Jesus came not just to save us, but to transform us. Now, I hope you were listening close and caught that word. I said it three or four times on purpose. That word is transform. Now, within Christianity, we will actually morph that word from just transform into this, transformation. We change it. We go from transform into transformation, and there's a reason for that. 
If we allow transform to stand on its own, it seems like a one-time event where we are transformed. But by moving it into the realm of transformation, we begin to see something different. And that is evident in the simple definition that we find for transformation within Christianity. It's up on the screen for you. It is the act or process of changing completely. The act or process of changing completely. It doesn't happen in the snap of a finger or the blink of an eye. It is a process. Now, that's hard for us to understand because at first glance, when we stumble across this idea of being transformed by Jesus, it seems like a command. It seems like something that we ought to just do, and then everything is behind us. Let me show you what I mean. If you have a Bible with you, open to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. We'll start in verse 1 because, well, it's just that good. Romans 12, verse 1. It's verse 2 I'm really after, but verse 1 is just deep stuff. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Now, let me read for you verse 2 again. We had a little technical error there. I don't want you to miss it. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, there's the word, by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. See what I mean by, at first glance, it seems like something that should just happen that fast? Be transformed. That's how we read Romans chapter 12, verse 2, and, and that's why we see this idea of transformation as a one-time command. But if you read verse 2 a lot smaller and a lot slower, what you will find is that transformation is a byproduct. It is a byproduct of changing your mind. The renewal of your mind is the terminology that Paul uses in my translation of the Bible. As our mind is perpetually renewed, transformation is a byproduct. It takes place as a result of that renewal, as a result of that change. You might say, how does that happen? How does the renewal of our mind happen? Or what type of change is Paul talking about? He is simply stating that a point comes once we've accepted Jesus as our personal Lord and Savior, and He is living in our heart, we are filled with the Holy Spirit, a point comes where we make a decision to no longer live for ourselves. We're changing our mind. Now I want to live for Him. I no longer want to do the things that are solely pleasing to me. I no longer want to do the things that seem right to me. I want to do things that seem right to Him and are pleasing to Him. That's a renewal of our mind. That's the changing of our mind. As that happens in a process, transformation takes place. Transformation takes place. Now, my friends, I want you to know that this process begins in honesty, and it leads to the most unique of places. Let me say that for you again. It begins in honesty, and it leads to the most unique of places. I like the way the Apostle Paul captures that in the book of 2 Corinthians. Why don't you turn there with me to chapter 3, verse 18. 
I'll show you both, the honesty and the unique place. Here we go. And we all, with unveiled face, there's the honesty part of it, the unveiled face, no mask, not hiding behind anything, not trying to cover anything up. We have an unveiled face. We are honest before the Lord is what Paul's talking about. And we all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. There's the process. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. That unique place is glory. Now, the process of it is from one degree of glory to another. We are all being changed into the same place that is the image of Christ. But in the process nature of it, we are doing so from one degree of glory to another. We're growing. We're being transformed by process. And it all begins back here in this idea of honesty the unveiled face. That's a requirement. There's some things that we have to come clean about. There are some things that we have to address if this process is actually going to begin. Without this type of unveiling of our face, the unveiling of our heart, this honest declaration before God, it's all pointless. It is all pointless. And I'll tell you how severe it is. I'm going to use some terminology that may shock you a little bit, and I'm going to ask you, don't, don't judge me too quickly. Don't write me off and say, oh, the preacher's being offensive today. I don't want to hear that. You stay with me because I am just the messenger. Here's what I mean. We have to stop lying. If we're going to really be honest with God, it begins right there. you got to quit lying. Now, like I said, I don't want you to leave me too early because remember, I'm just the messenger. So let's go to the book of 1 John together. This is where it all begins. 1 John chapter 1, starting in verse 5. This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus his Son cleanses us from all sin. If we have, say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. See what I mean? I'm just the messenger. I am just the messenger. This is where the unveiling begins. This is where the honesty begins. Stop lying. And what that means is stop lying about your sin. It exists. It is there. So you have to acknowledge it if you want to be transformed away from it. You have to acknowledge that there are some things that keep you separated from God if you want to close that gap and stop the separation. And the only way that we can do that is by acknowledging it, stopping the lies. Otherwise, here's all we do. We say that we desire a close relationship with God through His Son, Jesus, but we also want to hold on to our sin. So we want one thing, 
but we want this other thing more, and it starts this cycle of us saying, okay, I'm going to try not to sin any longer. I'm going to try to close the gap, and I'm going to get closer to the Lord, and we do for a little while, but then this thing over here that we see is nothing that great, nothing that severe, nothing that's causing this type of separation creeps back in because we never renewed our mind. We never changed our mind to say that I'm going to get that out, and now all of a sudden, this closeness that we had becomes separation again. And then we address it at another point where we say, I'm going to put that on the back burner and, and it's really not that big of a deal so that I can close this gap between myself and the Lord and I'll walk closely with Him. But then this thing that we set on the back burner that we didn't see as such a big deal creeps back into our life and separation is there again. It's a hamster wheel. And it, it just keeps on spinning all the time. And it keeps us out of the realm of transformation. It keeps us in a trap all because we won't really acknowledge what this thing is. It's sin and it's separating me from God. So rather than just trying to push it to the side or push it onto the back burner, I gotta get it right up here in front, stop lying about it, acknowledge it for what it is, and address it. Anything else is just a perpetuation of sin in our lives. So stop lying about it. Stop lying about it. That's what John was teaching. John was one of the preachers of love in the New Testament in his gospel and in his letters. But in preaching love, he was also pretty much in your face. And that's what we have right here, right now. He loved us enough to say, stop lying. Stop lying and address what you need to address so that you can be transformed and renewed into the image of Christ. That's what we're after. That's what we're after. If we can get it, it's pretty cool. If we don't, then we're going to live a pattern like Wayne Carlson. Maybe you've heard Wayne's story. He was arrested when he was 18 years old for stealing a car in Canada. Stood before the judge, and the judge sentenced him to 12 months in prison. Wayne went to prison. Now, he was 18. Remember that. 12 months in prison to an 18-year-old sounds like a life sentence. And he just thought to himself, there's no way that I can do these 12 years. No way at all. So he devised a plan to escape from prison, carried his plan out. He escaped. He got out. And then he got caught. And he had to stand in front of the judge again. The judge told him that he was going to serve his full sentence plus a little bit more now because he escaped. Well, he went back into prison, thought to himself, there's no way I can be here over a year now. So he devised a plan to escape. And he pulled it off. He escaped. And then he got caught, and he stood in front of the judge again. The judge sent him back to prison, this time for a little bit longer. This pattern continued 13 times, 13 times, until Wayne spent over 30 years in prison because he was trying to avoid the one. He was trying to get out of the one, and he ended up spending 30. Isn't that amazing? Well, how many of us have done the same thing? We've thought to ourselves, I want to put this thing that I don't necessarily want to call sin, I want to put it behind me so that I can close the gap with God and live a transformed, renewed life with Him. But then this thing seems just appealing enough that I figure out a way to fall back into it and I, I go for it. And then I, I find myself separated from the Lord again and I'll think things like this, well, next year I'll deal with that. Next year I'll take care of that. Or a few months from now, I'll address it and, and I'll stop it until we realize it's 30 years later. We've been held captive by it. 
So we have to stop lying. We have to stop lying and just address it for what it is. Just deal with it for what it is. It's sin. According to John and 1 John 1, it's sin. And if you say that that doesn't exist in your life, you're a liar and you're deceiving yourself. Again, just the messenger. You're a liar and you're deceiving yourself. But here's the cool thing. As you study the Bible, you will find out that when you acknowledge that sin that keeps you separated from God and keeps you distant from a transformed life and a renewed mind, when you acknowledge that that exists in your life, you will discover that Jesus paid the penalty. That 12 month that becomes 30 years, Jesus paid the penalty for it. He purchased you out of that way of life with his blood, with his life. Isn't that great news? Somebody say amen. amen. All right, if you're not sure about your amen, then let's get back into the Bible. We're going to go to the book of 1 Peter together. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. Speaking of Jesus, the great apostle wrote, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. I love the way Peter says that. What he is describing for us is what we sang about just a few minutes ago. He is describing God's amazing grace. It changes us. It changes us. Are the words of that song still fresh to you? When you sing them, do they still speak to you, or are they just something that you sing from time to time, most often at a funeral? Take a look at them again. Let's see how fresh they are to you. These are the words we just sang. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I see. It was grace that taught my heart to fear, and grace my fears relieved. How precious did that grace appear the hour I first believed. Through many dangers, toils, and snares we have already come. T'was grace that brought us safe this far, and grace will lead us home. And grace will lead us home. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. Was blind, but now I see. That's God's amazing grace. Peter captured it beautifully. In our sin, we get to recognize that Jesus paid the price for it. And when we do, transformation begins transformation starts. The process gets rolling. The renewal begins to take place, and the byproduct of transformation begins to become evident in our life. And here's what we discover about amazing grace. It grows. It grows. Grace grows. You heard me right. Grace grows. Now, I'm not talking about the grace of salvation. That was a one-time expenditure of grace, if you will, from God with his son Jesus on the cross and those of us that have been covered by his blood. That was enough. That grace doesn't grow. That was complete. But the grace of transformation is a growing grace. 
Let that sink in for just a second. It is a growing grace. It has to be. It has to be. It is necessary for it to be that way. I like this simple definition of what happens to us in grace. It'll be up here for you to see. God's children have been saved from the penalty of sin. We are being saved from the power of sin. And we will be saved from the presence of sin. That's the growing nature of grace. That's how it starts in one place and then just keeps expanding. Look at it again. Pay close attention to the italicized words. God's children have been saved from the penalty of sin. The one-time act of grace of Jesus on the cross. We are being saved from the power of sin. That's what's going on in our life now, and that's that increasing power of grace. And we will be saved. That's ultimate in heaven from the presence of sin. Grace grows. It is ever-expanding. That is a hard thing for people to wrap their minds around. It really is. I like the way the Apostle John would capture it in the first chapter of his gospel. John chapter 1, verse 16. Listen to what he says. For from his fullness... We have all received grace upon grace. It's grace upon grace. It's building. It's growing. John Piper does a bang-up job of simplifying that whole idea and what we're talking about uh, with this ever-expanding idea of grace. Take a look at this. Grace is not simply leniency when we have sinned. Grace is the enabling gift of God not to sin. Grace is power, not just pardon. That's what grace is. That's God's amazing grace, and that's why it grows the way it does. My friends, as it grows, here's what it does for us. It changes how we see sin. The ever-expanding nature of grace changes how we see sin. The ever-expanding nature of grace helps us grow up in the Lord. Now again, I don't want you just to believe me on this. I want you to test this against the Word of God. So together, let's go to Hebrews chapter 6. If you have a Bible with you, oh, look at this passage. If you don't have a Bible with you, grab one out of the chair rack. There's one somewhere around you. You need to see this for yourself because the Bible would teach us that we are to test every spirit. And when somebody is telling you that the ever-expanding nature of grace causes us to change how we see sin, that's the kind of thing that you ought to test. You ought to look at it for yourself. Don't just listen to me. Don't just listen to any other preacher, YouTube, podcaster, or anything else. You look at it for yourself. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 1. Folks, this is, this is one of the deepest passages in all of the New Testament. There is some remarkable teaching in this chapter. It is one of my favorites. I have many, but it is one of my favorites. And you'll see why. We're starting in verse 1. Here we go. Therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, and of an instruction about washing, some translations say baptism, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do 
if God permits. You may want to write in the margin of your Bible next to those first three verses, grow up. Just write the words, grow up, because that's what the writer of Hebrews is telling us to do. We've got to move past the elementary teachings and grow up. We have to find some maturity, and that's part of this grace upon grace idea, the ever-expanding nature of it that takes us deeper in our knowledge of the Lord, causes a transformation to happen within our hearts and a renewal to happen within our minds. It happens when we grow up in the faith. Now listen to what he goes into. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful to those for whose sake it is cultivated receives a blessing from God. But it bears thorns and thistles, It is worthless and near to being cursed, and its end is to be burned. I want to stop there real quick because that ought to be somewhat curious to you. It should be interesting, no question about it. And maybe for some of you, it's a little bit scary. Do you follow what the writer of Hebrews was saying? For those that have tasted the heavenly gift, that have been filled with the Holy Spirit, There is a point in sin where you choose to remain in it. There is a point where you cross a line that the writer of Hebrews is telling us it's impossible for you to come back. It's impossible to be restored. Now, he's talking about Christians. He is talking about people that have given their lives to Christ. They have been filled with the Holy Spirit. And now they have chosen to stay in their sin rather than continuing on in the ever-expanding nature of grace so that they are growing up in Him. They have gone so far backwards that they have walked away from what they have tasted with the Lord. This is really a matter of walking away from the goodness that we have experienced. These are Christians. Now the writer is telling you, you can't come back. You cross that line, you can't come back. The question that is most often asked of me when it comes to this passage is, where is that line? I don't know. I don't know. Wish I could tell you, but I don't know. I do know that in the Gospels, Jesus would tell us that the only only unforgivable sin is blaspheming the Holy Spirit, and this ties directly to it. I've tasted the heavenly gift. I know who the Holy Spirit is, and I've kicked him out of my life. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit is tied directly to that. So when we don't know exactly where the line is, wisdom dictates that we stay away from it. You just stay away from it. And the way you do that is through the ever-expanding nature of grace, moving from one degree of glory to the next, experiencing grace upon grace. Writer goes on in verse 9 to say, Though we speak in this way, Yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. I like the way the NIV reads. It says things that accompany salvation. Verse 9 is tied to the first three verses. You can draw an arrow in your Bible if you want to from verse 9 over to verses 1 through 3 so that you see how they connect. We get that great teaching between them, but this is really the connecting point. We're at a place that we are looking for something that accompanies salvation. Do you know what accompanies salvation? 
transformation. Transformation accompanies salvation. Writer goes on to say, verse 10, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name and serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness, to have the full assurance of hope until the end. Underline that term, full assurance of hope until the end, so that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. That full assurance idea says that as long as I am adding to my salvation grace upon grace and I am growing in the Lord and getting ever closer to Him, I have no worry about condemnation. I have full assurance of my salvation and I have nothing to worry about including that line where it is impossible to return. What we are after is the full assurance of our faith, the full assurance of our salvation and that is relationship. That is relationship. So we hold on to that. Oh, we hold on to that in increasing measure. Grace upon grace. Just let it pour out in your life. Let it take root. And what you will find is it will change how you see sin. The transformed person understands that there is no big sin or little sin. That doesn't exist. There's just sin. The transformed person knows that there's no such thing as a little white lie, just a lie. The transformed person completely understands the fact that there is no one-time sin that doesn't really matter because it isn't a pattern in my life. There's just sin. The transformed person understands this truth, and this is truth. Jesus died for all of those sins. Jesus paid the penalty for all of them. So I don't want to, as the writer of Hebrews says, continue in them and thereby put Jesus back on the cross over and over and over again. He paid the penalty. He's off the cross. He is off the cross. Jesus is off the cross. And he is out of the grave. He is out of the grave. I don't often say things like this, but it seems appropriate, so hang with me. Be careful when you look at a cross, maybe hanging on somebody's neck or on the wall of their house, where Jesus is still on it. Because the real hope of salvation is the fact that he's not. The real promise of Scripture is that Jesus is no longer on the cross. He paid the penalty for our sin. If anybody wanted to say amen, you'd make me feel better if you did. Thank you. Thank you. Jesus is off the cross. Trust it trust it. That's what transforms us. If we leave him on the cross, we leave him there dying for our sin over and over and over and over and over again, and thereby giving ourselves permission to continue in sin. And God doesn't grant us that. So make sure Jesus is off the cross. Now, with all of that said, as we're looking at this transformation idea and getting ready to move into January, I want us to do so by looking at some of the marks of a transformed life. This is going to set the stage for what we're going to do, and we'll end with this. It's found in Colossians chapter 1, starting in verse 9. There are five things that I hope will jump out at you. Let's go through this passage, and again, if you're a highlighter, note taker, underliner, get ready to highlight and underline all five of these things. They are the marks of a transformed life. Verse 9, 
And so, from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of His will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to Him, bearing fruit in every good work, and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power according to His glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Five things. Now highlight them or underline them in your Bible so that they jump out at you. Number one is right up here. The transformed person is filled with the knowledge of His will. That's where we're going to start next week. Well, that means we're going to jump right into the deep end. We're going to look at what it means to determine God's will for our life. I hope you'll be here next week. Number two, transformed person is walking in a manner worthy of the Lord. Number three, transformed person is bearing fruit in every good work. Number four, the transformed person is strengthened with all power. And number five, the transformed person is giving thanks to the Father. Those are the five messages of January. You already know what they are. I'm just going to expound on them as we go through the month. But there you have it, the five marks of a transformed life. In order to get there, though, it still requires a change of thinking. Thankfully, Paul gives that to us in Colossians 1, verse 13. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. That word transferred is of the utmost importance. He has transferred us out of the dominion of darkness and into the kingdom of His Son. That's transformation. The transformed person has been transferred. We have been moved out of the dominion of darkness into the kingdom of His beloved Son. So one of the questions that bears asking is, have I experienced that transfer? Have I been moved? Or am I still walking in darkness? Am I in the light? If I am in the light, then grace upon grace is exposed and visible for me so that it can be poured out on me. If I'm still in the dark, if I haven't been transferred, I'm not seeing God's grace. I'm not seeing His action. I'm not seeing unexpected things happening in my life from him that become a part of my testimony. I'm not experiencing those things because I haven't been transferred. But if you have been, you know what I'm talking about. You know what I'm talking about. I'll leave you with this thought as the worship team comes up. Modern Christianity has not done a great favor to this idea of transformation. Modern teaching and preaching and Modern belief within the church has actually kind of harmed it by teaching us this, that as Christians we have been covered by the blood of Jesus, but at our core we are still just sinners. That's, that's difficult teaching that has caused a lot of people to stumble. In essence, that's like saying, Jesus is a clean garment that I put on, but underneath that clean garment I'm just dirty and filthy. That's really what that teaching means. And if we buy into that, if we subscribe to that idea, then we're staying over here in the dominion of darkness. We haven't been transferred. 
But if we believe that Jesus has transformed us from one degree of glory to the next, that grace upon grace is being poured out on us, then we are cleaning up. We're becoming a new person, Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. The old is gone, the dirt is gone, the filth is gone. And I have put on Christ and I am a new creation in Him. That's the mark of a transferred person. I've cleaned some things up. I'm getting rid of the dirt and the filth. Oh, it's a process. It is a process. But it's a beautiful one. An absolute beautiful one. And I'll be honest and tell you that it is a process that continues from the moment of salvation until the moment that we stand before the Lord. It is an ongoing, ever-present process. But it's a cool one. So make sure you're in it. Make sure you have your transfer documents. Jesus signed them. He paid for it. Make sure you start right there. And then make sure you're in process from one degree of glory to the next.